0: This is the recording made in the chapter of the open book, and it is number nine of the series, The Unity of the Spirit. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and we'll read the epistle to the Colossians, chapters two and three. Well, this evening... We are still in this question of the unity of the spirit and what we are to keep the items we have been surveying the one body a reconciled body the one spirit without which the body is dead the one hope which is attached to its calling and then in the centre the one Lord then on the either side we get the balance to the hope, we get the one faith. And now this evening, we come to the one baptism. It's very difficult as you read these seven statements, one body, and then you come to one baptism. To be told, that means two baptisms. Because, if this is the baptism that started on the day of Pentecost, and runs through the Acts of the Apostles almost to the end, There was never one baptism. Those who were baptised in water were baptised by the Spirit. They spoke with tongues. They had supernatural gifts. So we've got to be careful that we don't suddenly intrude into this unity a disturbing factor. Because if it's right to say one baptism is the correct expression for two baptisms, then what about one hope? One faith? One Lord? Or you say this is rather a controversial subject? Well, so they all are. And if we are going to shirk our responsibilities because they're controversial, we shan't be able to follow the example of the Apostle Paul who reasoned and alleged and proved and stood and yielded subjection not for an hour that the truth of the Gospel might continue right through. Now, supposing somebody, as they have said, very naively says, "Uh, do you believe in baptism? Well, that's that sort of question that you can't answer. Or you can't give me a straight answer. Say, no. And if you'll give me about 20 minutes, I'll tell you why. Say, what's the 20 minutes for? Just to read the different baptisms there are, and you want to know whether I believe in baptism. Well, there's only one, isn't there? All right then, shall we start, friends, without ado, and just see what's written in the New Testament, and then say, now, which one of those, if we've got to make a selection, if we can only have one, which one is it? Shall we start then with Mark's Gospel, the first chapter and the fourth verse? And we'll just ask one another as we read these, just now and again, is that the one? Is that the one in Ephesians? Mark's Gospel chapter 1 verse 4. John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. That's baptism. You say, do you believe in baptism? Well, is that the one baptism which we have to keep? Repentance for the remission of sins. Well, he said, oh, I'm quite clear about that. Well, we'll have another try the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. <clears throat> now you see, we're outside the Gospels, we've left John the Baptist behind, the day of Pentecost has come, and here we have the Apostle Peter. It says in chapter 2, verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So we have repentance, the remission of sins, and now, after Pentecost, the added gift of the Holy Ghost. So do you believe in that gospel? Is that the one? Well, they say, I don't know. I'm rather disconcerted about this hard idea of baptism being for the remission of sins. And then, of course, there's this next thought that it was immediately presupposed. That if you had this baptism, you would have the gift of the Holy Ghost. Or well, let's go again and have a look somewhere else. The um, Acts of the Apostles, chapter 22. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 22. Verse 14. Oh no, I must go back, I'm sorry. Verse 12. The Apostle Paul is recounting what happened to him when he was converted. Verse 12. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having good report of all the Jews which dwelt there. What do you want to say that for, Paul? Oh, he says, I've got a reason. It's necessary that you should know that the man who came to me wasn't a member of the church of the one body, which didn't exist. He was a dead out there, having a good report of all the Jews. And it was according to the law. So he came and said, Brother Saul, receive thy sight And the same hour. I looked up upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth, for thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why charriest thou? Arise and be baptised, <coughs> and wash away thy sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. For well, now we do read in the Acts of the Apostles, Acts 9, where he was converted, that Ananias said to him, Brother Saul, and Paul was baptised. That's all it says. But now he's recounting what this devout man according to the law and having all the favour among the Jews said to him, and he said to Paul, be baptised and wash away your sins. Well, I don't believe Paul ever did such a think. He was baptised. Right enough. But I think Ananias was saying something that was in harmony with the devout man who was in line with the law of Moses and the good report among the Jews. Would you say it says here, doesn't it? Oh, yes, I know. Let's see what this same Apostle Paul himself said when he wrote to the Corinthians. Chapter 1 of First Corinthians. Because there's division among them there, he said, among other things. Verse 14, I thank God that I baptised none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptised in my own name. Oh, and I baptised also the household of Stephanus, Besides, I know not whether I baptised any other. But you're a bit casual over that, Paul. If this is for the remission of sins, you don't quite know whether you did or not. Oh, he said, Christ sent me not to preach, to baptise, but to preach the gospel. But he didn't send Peter not to baptise and preach the gospel. And he didn't send those who are going to take up the commission later on, which is called the Great Commission, Go ye into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They couldn't take away baptism from the Gospel. Or look at the end of Mark 16. You see, we keep on saying to ourselves, is that the one you you believe? Well, we haven't got one yet, you see. Mark 16. And this is often misquoted, or if, if it's not misquoted, it's not quite fully realised what you're saying. Verse 15. He said unto them, Go ye to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved. Well, is that what you preach? You preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. You preach the wonderful work of the cross. But you say, I'm sorry friends, if you're not baptised as well as believe, no salvation. You see, what's happened is, the Christian church have adopted baptism as a means whereby a converted person can make it manifest to the outside world that he's saved. What do you say? That's all very well. That doesn't make much difference. But it's not here. This is an unconverted person who believes the gospel and is baptized at the same time that it is saved. Saved comes afterwards. So you see, it's not a simple question, is it? When you say, do you believe in baptism? Do you mean John's baptism? Do you mean Peter's statement? Do you mean Mark 16? Do you mean Matthew 28? Oh, you see, there's plenty of it, isn't there? I should think there was. Suppose we look at the first chapter of the Acts. We've looked at one or two in the Acts, but let's look at the way it opens. The first chapter of the Acts. He refers to John's baptism, but now he's going to make a contrast. Verse 4, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which that he have heard of me, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. Oh, well that's differentiating between one baptism and the other. John was water, now there's the spirit, oh that's the one for the unity in Ephesians 4. Why oh, is it? Because this is preparing their minds for the descent of the Spirit of God, the speaking with tongues, the evidences that were given, the laying on of hands, the cleansing of the lepers, the giving sight to the blind, the raising of the dead. So you see, it's not quite such a simple question, is it? Do you believe in baptism? We have to say to ourselves, which? Because not one of us could possibly believe in all the statements that are made, because even these differ a little bit among themselves. And then we come further in the Acts of the Apostles. We find on more than one occasion he was baptised with all his house. Household baptisms. Uh, as though if the head of the house became a Christian, the rest of the household automatically went with him. But that's not possible to think that that's true for us so far as we are concerned today. And then of course we've got Baptism in the New Testament, which belongs only to Christ. And yet that's often used, follow the Lord in baptism. Uh, Where did you get that from? Well, Jesus said to John the Baptist, suffer us. He said, oh, I need to be baptised to thee, and comest thou to me. But we can't follow the Lord in baptism. There's no statement like that. As soon as that baptism took place, the heavens opened, and the voice said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And John tells you, the first chapter of John tells you that it will be extra. That John was told that he would have a revelation given to him as to the Messiah, and he'd see a sign. That while he was baptizing, he said, "You, I've sent you to be to baptize because you are going to see this sign. Upon someone who will come seeking baptism from you will be the sign of the dove." Descending from heaven, and he says, I knew that this was the Messiah. We can't follow the Lord in baptism there, can we? And then, when that baptism was all over and finished, after the third, after the beginning of the gospel, halfway through the gospel, our Saviour turned to some of his disciples and said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how am I straitened till that be accomplished? What baptism is that? All well, that's not the baptism in water that was over. There's no evidence in the scripture that Christ was ever baptized with a Holy Spirit in power like they were on the day of Pentecost. Yet he had a baptism to be baptized with. And then he told those who were listening to him, And can you be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And can you drink the cup that I drink? They said, Yes, Lord. And he said, Yes, you will. But to sit on my right hand and my left is not mine to give. So here is a baptism that the Lord had in front of him that has nothing whatever to do with being dipped or sprinkled in water that these might possibly share. So I again ask myself the question, do you believe in baptism? Which one? It's not just a simple question, you see. And it needs a fair consideration. Well, then when we turn to the epistles of Paul, apart from that one strange passage in Corinthians, Romans, the sixth chapter. Romans, the sixth chapter, starts a series of four possible objections. What should we say then? God forbid, four times over. And the first one is this. Well, what should we say then? If where sin abounds, grace did much more abound. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? The Apostle says, you haven't changed your religion. This isn't a change of opinion. you died with Christ. And you started a new life. Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead for the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now it's very possible that that refers to water baptism for water baptism was still being administered. But he said, whatever you do, don't forget that this is associating you, identifying you with the death and the burial of the Son of God. And so now we're beginning to see another aspect. And we can draw a line across the Scriptures with regard to the references to baptism in the Old Testament. And the line is this that when you come to the tabernacle service of Moses, baptism is then a washing. But if you come to the baptisms that are mentioned or in type before the tabernacle service, they are uh, identification, not washing. So I think it's time we began to look at some of those features. And um, first of all, I turn to Hebrews chapter 9, in order to get this reference to the baptisms in the tabernacle. And then we'll look a little more closely at some of these Old Testament foreshadowings. Hebrews chapter 9. The Apostle is giving a a quick sketch of the tabernacle and its furniture and he says in verse 8, the Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time there present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings. Now that word washings is in the Greek the word baptisms. So it stood in meats, and drinks, and diverse baptisms, and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But when Christ came, they were set aside. Well now, if you'll come to the Epistle to the Colossians, you will see that he said the same thing there. We read the Epistle to the Colossians just now, but we must come back to it. Chapter 2. Verse 12, buried with him in baptism. Well, look a bit further down before we deal with that. Verse 16, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days which are a shadow of things to come but the body is of Christ. He's practically gone over the same things that he enumerated when he spoke about the carnal ordinances that were imposed upon them until the time of Reformation, but Christ having come, they've gone. So why perpetuate them? Why introduce them? Why continue them? Go back again in our story, Colossians 2. This time, we'll look at verse 11 this time. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. And then he's saying, and what does that mean? He tells you, in putting off the body and the word of the Thessalonians, should go out. In the um, texts now which we realise are very much more reliable than the ones that the authorised version had in front of them, he's not dealing with sins, he's dealing with the body of the flesh. And you can see that that's sort of suggested here. By the circumcision of Christ. Shall I ask the question, does this mean literal circumcision? Oh, you say, no, it can't be. Well, then if it's not literal in verse 11, how can it be literal in verse 12 when he goes on to take it a stage further? Buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances. And you mean to tell me that all that means that they were baptised in water. Oh, we've left that behind, friends. This is the real thing now, of which the water and the gifts and all the other aspects were shadows. But who wants the shadows when the reality is here? And so we've got to the highest point in this story. Well, now we'll go and look at the references to baptism that are implied or actually mentioned before the tabernacle services. Because, you see, the naver which stood outside, the naver for the washing of the hands and the feet by the priests, the washing of the sacrifices, and then it was continued in further ordinances of Moses, washing platters and cups and beds, or I don't know what more. It's right to be clean, but you see they took it to such an extreme that it became a burden. All those things were imposed upon them, it says. Imposed upon them. Well, God hasn't imposed These things upon us, for we have been given a marvellous liberty in Christ. And note that yoke of the law, which even Peter said our fathers could not endure, is not going to be reaffixed on the necks of those who are members of the body of Christ who never were under it. Now, first of all, we'll take a passage from Peter. And if you can explain it explicitly, friends, I shall have to admit you're a better man than I am. 1 Peter chapter 3 he's speaking about the spirits in prison. Verse 20 Which sometimes were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing wherein few that his eight souls were saved by water. Well that puzzles you, doesn't it? If anything that they never had any contact with was the water. You know full well not a spot of water touched Noah or his family. The door was opened. They entered the ark. The door was shut. And then when the door was shut, the windows of heaven were opened and the fountains of the great deep came up and anyone who was touched with the water in that day died. Well, how was he saved through water? All the like figure went on to even baptism does also now save us. So here's baptism saving them. And he refers to an Old Testament type where the water certainly was there. But he never touched them. So if anybody's going to prove from that that it's water that saves them, as some have done, I think that would be difficult, won't they? Water could have drowned them. Certainly water buoyed up the ark, but it was only because the ark was rendered watertight by the symbol of atonement, pitch it within and out with pitch, that any were saved. So let's come to another one. Perhaps we'll get a little bit nearer. if um, We'll turn, first of all, to Hebrews, chapter 11, where certain acts of faith are recorded And here is one in verse 29. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. They passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. Now I'm going to turn to another reference by Paul to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, actually, the Apostle is not bothering about baptism. He's speaking about running for the prize. And he's trying to impress upon them that it's one thing to be a redeemed person and another thing to have the added prize. But he says, they were all baptized into Moses and they all did eat the same and they all did this but with many of them. God was not well pleased. But we won't come over it with that except recognizing that that's the midst of the argument. Now, this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. And you know, the Apostle Paul has used that expression, I'm not quite sure how many times, but quite a number of times. And it's almost the same as when our Lord in John's Gospel said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is something you've got to watch. Don't read it without care. I would not have you to be ignorant. How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptised unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Well, leaving it as it there, they were all baptised in the sea, and that's a good picture of baptism. But I read just now in Hebrews that they went through on dry land. So By the time we see the ark as a symbol of salvation and they were saved by water, and by the time we look at the Red Sea, and they all passed through the Red Sea and we find it was dry land, isn't it extraordinary that these two types haven't got a spot of water about them and yet they're held up as symbols of baptism? I think we'd better test this a bit more, shall we? Go back to the book of Exodus where the crossing of the Red Sea actually is recorded because I may be making too much of this, maybe just an accident. Exodus 14. Verse 19, And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. And it was a cloud and darkness to them. But it gave light by night to these, so that the one came not near the other all night. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea. Oh, you say, I've got you there. They went into the midst of the sea. But then I'll read the next verse. It was upon dry ground. So you see, you can't evade it, can you? And the waters were a wall unto them on the right hand and on the left. And in the 15th chapter of the same book this is the song of Moses. 19th verse, for the horse of Pharaoh went in with his chariots and with his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought again the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. And that's not all. You'll find it repeated in the Psalms about the Waters standing, are they going on dry land as a man goes through a wilderness? Well, why all this emphasis if it's a type of water baptism and there's no water there by a miracle? Do you see, in the baptism that Peter referred to, there were eight souls and those eight had to be together. Not one of them could stop outside. They were a group. They were identified with Noah. He was the one that was chosen by God. He said, take now thy son and thy son's wives and go in. Here we have again, they were baptised into Moses. Not baptised for the remission of sins. Not baptised for repentance. They were identified with their leader. Friends, that's where we are getting now. That's what baptism means in Colossians and Ephesians. Not a baptism where we have to confess our sins or a baptism where we get the remission of sins or baptism whereby we are saved, but a uniting together of the believer with his Lord and being identified with him. Baptised into Moses. In the New Testament, baptised into Christ. Well now, there's one other baptism and that is the crossing of Jordan. The word baptism doesn't actually occur in our Bibles, uh, but it does occur in the Greek translation, which gives us the word baptised to carry on. So, we will notice. Chapter 4 of the book of Joshua. Uh, Chapter 3, I'm sorry, book of Joshua, chapter 3. Now, supposing we pick up the reading at um, verse 7. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. And thou shalt command the priests that bear the ark of the covenant, saying, When ye are come to the brink of the water of Jordan, ye shall stand still in Jordan. Oh dear stand still in Jordan. Or just, I suppose it was just a little trickle of water in those days, and so it'd be easy. But this very chapter says, in verse 15, For Jordan overfloweth all its banks, all the time of harvest, was in full flood. And it's a very rapid river. So these priests were told to stand still in the middle of Jordan. Or would you say, you're not worried about them, are you? Oh, well, let's read on then and see what happened. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither and hear the words of the Lord your God. And he says in verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe a man. Oh, I see. One man is going to represent a tribe. Twelve men out of every tribe. One man to represent one tribe. Twelve of them. Looks as though we're going to get to this idea of identification again, doesn't it? And it shall come to pass, as soon as the souls of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon a heap. Worthy is a repetition of the crossing of the Red Sea. This is starting all over again, but this time We have one or two added words in the first record. It said, they passed over. In this record, they passed clean over. A little addition, which means so much more. This is the second time. It stood upon a heap. And it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, and the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people. And as they that bear the Ark were come into Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the ark were baptised in the brim of the water, that's where the word baptism actually occurs, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon a heap which is very far from the city of Adam. But the actual wording is rather as far back as the city of Adam. On the one hand, And those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off. So the water stayed back there at a little city called Adam, and it was cut off there. And the whole crowd of these people, the whole lot of them, went over dry shod. And is it only by accident that a little bit of geography is thrown into the scriptures? What's it matter to us what name of the village was on the banks of Jordan? Well, if it had been any other name, I don't suppose we'd have been told. But there's nobody could read that the water go back to Adam without realizing what the apostle Paul would make about that when he was speaking on this passage. What well, is not that exactly what happens? Right back to Adam. Cut off. Right away from the Dead Sea. Cut off. You pass over dry shot. So there's types all the way through this. Well, we'll read just a bit more. And the priests that bear the Ark and the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan. And all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. And then in the next chapter, there's a bit of symbolism again. It seems a strange thing. These twelve men that represent the tribes, verse 2, take you hence out of the midst of Jordan out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones. And you shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you shall lodge this night. Well, I say, what's the idea? Taking twelve stones out. Well, then it's even more complicated because Joshua takes twelve stones and put them back again. Not the same twelve. Let's go on. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take you up every man of your stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. So they represented him. That this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then you tell them how they passed over, and verse 8, The children of Israel did so as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones and out of the midst of Jordan, as the Lord spake unto Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. And then in verse 9, and Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan. They take twelve out, he puts twelve in. He looks daft, unless it's got a very special, typical meaning. That's what's happening. This Jordan, you see, is the very place where our Saviour came and started his public ministry. Christ stood in the midst of Jordan. And these people who knew the, that they'd been repeated in their ears, children asked their fathers about the Passover, children asked their fathers about these twelve stones, and there it's being. Someone is going to be your representative. Someone is going to be there for you. Here's identity, identity coming in again. You being identified with him, he being identified with you, the surety, Christ is here. So he says, and Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of Jordan, in the place, not anywhere else, where the feet of the priests which bear the Ark of the Covenant stood, and there they are unto this day. Of course, that was written. They're not standing there now, but it was there for a period when they could refer to them. Well, now with it we have to sort this out a little bit, as far as it's humanly possible. We come back to the epistle to the Ephesians. We remember that it's addressed to those who were by nature aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, and that now they are those who are far off are made nigh, not by being baptised, no reference to baptism, but by the blood of Christ. The middle wall of partition's gone, where they imposed upon the Gentile certain things, that's all gone. And the body Is the process or the means whereby the reconciliation is manifested that he might reconcile the both unto God in one body by the cross having slain the enmity thereby. And then we have have access by one spirit unto the Father. Not a single reference in chapters 1 or 2 or 3 of any ordinance whatever any ritual whatever. They are told that they were strangers from all this and that the complete work has been done by the cross of Christ without any of these additions. So we begin to look at our calling. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings. We have a hope that's associated not with the earth but with heavenly places. And we begin to see that it has no place this emphasis upon an ordinance, so when we say, "Do we believe in baptism?" say, "Yes, friends, we do. There are some of God's people that call themselves the church of the baptized believers, but I say, "I belong to the church of the baptized believers, I say, "Oh do you, I'm glad to meet you, or but I say, "I don't think you're exactly the same as you." You stressed that you belong to the Church of the Baptized Believers because you must insist that everyone of them must be baptized in water. Yes, but I said I belong to the Church of the Baptized Believers who are baptized into Christ without any ceremonial at all. I'm united together with Him, buried with Him in baptism, raised again by the faith of the operation of God who raised Him from the dead. Oh, it all goes straight forward. There's no intervention. And he says. Oh, therefore let no man judge you with regard to these ordinances that once stood but now are carried clean away. They're shadows. The body is of Christ. So that I'll come back again and say if you will notice the occurrences of the word baptism and the types that are also used of baptism, you'll find that you can divide it into two great groups. The first group Whenever baptism is symbolized, strangely enough, God goes out of his way to say, dry land. Dry land. Not touch with water. And then when you come to the tabernacle, it changes. The baptisms there are confessions of sin and of the necessity of cleansing and washing. Well, we still need cleansing we still have the washing of the water by the word. But so far as any one particular ordinance is concerned, they're all finished. And the perfect work of Christ applied by the Spirit of God through the ministry of his word, we walk by faith and not by sight. And once again when we go back to Colossians, you notice that unless you could make circumcision literal, either for yourself or Christ, you can't go further. But once you say, oh, well, that means the repudiation of the flesh, oh, yes, and the baptism means the identifying with him and the whole thing dead and buried and newness of life. So I think we'll go back to Colossians chapter 3 and read the words which have no question whatever with whether you observe this or whether you observe this or the other. I'll start with verse 20 of chapter 2. Wherefore, if ye died with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Then chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things on the earth, for ye died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And this one body, united together with Christ, is said to be in verse 10, the putting on of the new man. And in that company, Verse 11, there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. So the baptism seems to resolve itself into two classes an identification of the believer with his Lord, that is, they baptized into Moses, that's one aspect, and the other, the literal washings and baptisms which had a symbolic value. Well, now, of course, we're not going to say a person who is baptised in water today is committing a deadly sin. It may be that he sees in the Scriptures enough to make him feel that he will obey his Lord and do it. I'm not condemning anybody. I'm only saying, don't you impose it upon someone simply because you haven't distinguished between things that differ. I'm in a peculiar fix myself, I, I, I ought not to speak, I suppose, up here on this subject because my father had no faith whatever when I was born. I don't mean that that had anything to do with me. That's an accident. He didn't believe anything. He got so upset with all the church and its teaching that he didn't believe any of it. But he said because he knew that certain people had lost a good job because they weren't christened in the Church of England, I was christened in the Church of England. That's all in the to me. And then when I became a Christian, it soon began to dawn upon me that Christians were baptized. So I had a proper set too with my mother because she thought I was crazy, and I had to ask her about some clothes. That's why <laughs> I was immersed. Yes, yeah, so I've been through that. So I was sprinkled as a baby, then I was immersed as a believer, and now I see I've got a baptism not made with hands, a baptism that man cannot see and man cannot do. Well, there it is. Don't make a feature of it. Don't make a sort of argument about it. But come back to Ephesians 4 and say, I've got to keep a unity. One baptism. I've got to sort that out. One baptism. I'm not allowed to. What do you say, if you're not allowed to, surely in a spiritual calling like Ephesians, you can't say, oh, I won't have anything to do with the spirit in baptism. It's only water. Well, that doesn't seem to be consistent. And there we leave it. So may the Lord take up what we'll be considering and then as you ponder it and search for yourself may he write it upon your hearts and above all things realise that it's the finished work of Christ which is the basis of all our hopes and whether in water or not in water is a matter for each one's conscience as guided by the Spirit of God. We have done our best to try to show you the way in which it's written in the scriptures. And there, for the moment, we must read it.